If you just buy a Rolex, okay, you might be into watches, but probably you don't really know that much about timepieces, else you choose something more interesting. When you go out and you have a watch customized for yourself, like this is someone who's very comfortable with his wristwatch hobby. You know, it's like you go in a room full of watch lovers and you're like, okay, we're all in here, we all love watches. Like, who here's a super villain as well? So now you can't you can't go to a watch meetup. Those red bar guys, they might go there and be like, okay, is one of us, I don't know, you know, a mass murderer? Also likes indie dive watches, might also be into serial killing. On a blog to watch weekly, Rick, Ariel and David ask if Tudor has now officially become an homage brand to Rolex with the release of the new Tudor Ranger. They discuss the IWC Lake Tahoe, the Anordain Model 1, and if there is room for a wafer thin Richard Neal in the watch world. Enjoy the show! Greetings and welcome to this week's A Blog to Watch Weekly. We have both Ariel and David joining us. How are you gentlemen? Very well, thank you. There's a big pause there as you were. You were just too polite, the pair of you waiting for the other person to say how well they are. How are you, David? Same here. Yeah, very well. Excited about today's topics. Lots of cool watches to talk about. Yeah, there has been plenty on uh, for us to chat about. But just before we started recording this, I was sent an email by you because it was really top of the agenda that, Ariel, you wanted to speak about a particular, I, I don't know what you call it, a release a particular watch this week a, a glc indeed a glc reversal why don't you tell us about it? we don't normally talk about auctions but we're going to talk about this no one. and this is this is a watch that we couldn't even write an article about like if if even if i wanted to write an article about this which i wouldn't do for a lot of good reasons it's just too scary of a watch but you know once in a while you see something which is an intersection of your hobby and something truly horrific and it makes you take pause and this was for me I guess you could say the scariest watch I've ever seen, like that struck the most fear in me. Yeah. What we're talking about is I got an email from an auctioneer, not not a company which is a traditional watch auctioneer, but an auctioneer of like memorabilia and military stuff. And this isn't the first time that a watch, you know, that's like a Nazi watch has been up for auction. This is it's been known that there's pocket watches and wrist watches here and there. But this was Adolf Hitler's personal reverso that had like the whole the whole nine yards painted on it his birthday the date that he i don't know achieved some chancellorship or something i guess what's so scary about it is that if you take out the sort of horrendously dark historical context it's just a watch guy doing what a watch guy does right and it was very strange to see this massive villain in history that you know was responsible for the death of a bunch of my family members just doing watch guy stuff and participating back then in, in the hobby in a way that feels unbelievably relevant today. Uh, this was not signed JLC. It was signed with the name of the German retailer that he bought it from. Like, you know, <laughs> so yeah. just watch guy going to a watch store buying a personalized watch. And, and that taken into context with the markings on it, including his initials. <laughs> yeah. And you know it's not any other AH because it has his birth date and some other significant dates, right? There's no confusion who this watch was meant for and that he wore. And it looks no. like there's modern versions of the Reverso that look surprisingly similar. You could have a modern homage if you wanted to. How scary would that be? And that's why we don't want to write about it. But I just, again, you know, these things cross your way and you're like, oh, wow, that's terrifying. And so I don't know. I just I had to talk about it. When you sent it to me, you said, oh, uh, Hitler's watch has come up for auction. And I thought, okay, so that's just like, like, I don't, I'm trying to think of other people I could name 
but I don't really want to name them. But you hear other people's watches coming up for auction, and it's just their watch. It's the watch that they wore that there was pictures of. Then you sent me the picture, and there's no dispute. This is Hitler's watch. <laughs> this is not like just a, <laughs> yeah. the reversal that happened to go out to the shops and buy. No, no, no. no. This is Hitler's watch. Are you familiar with Godwin's Law? I think you're about to tell me. So Godwin's Law or Godwin's Rule is a, it basically says that any online discussion continues long enough, someone will get compared to Hitler. Oh, that so one. So basically yeah, yeah, all yeah. arguments descend into that kind of thing. And basically watch collecting has finally descended as a consequence of Godwin's Law to this. Yeah. It's it's odd. It's very odd. I just don't understand what they think they're doing auctioning this. This is weird. Because uh, they can. This is just enterprise working. I don't even want to talk about how much is estimated at or how much it goes for. Yeah. None of that is relevant information. I don't even care that it's auctioned. I won't even write about the auction. I, I am a watch collector, not just of watches I can buy, but I like to have a catalog in my mind of all the interesting watches that have existed and plenty I don't know about. But watches outstand you because of not only who they who wore them and why, but what they ended up choosing. You know, it's again, it's a very personal thing when you're into watches. Like if you just buy a Rolex, okay, you might be into watches, but probably you don't really know that much about timepieces else you choose something more interesting when you go out and you have a watch customized for yourself like this is someone who's very comfortable with his wristwatch hobby and granted it was very different back then but it's just you know it's like you go in a room full of watch lovers and you're like okay we're all in here we all love watches like who here's a super villain as well you know like <laughs> and so now you can't you can't go to a watch meetup a group those you know those those red bar guys they might go there and be like okay is one of us i don't know you know a mass murderer <laughs> also likes indie dive watches might also be into serial killing and, and modern yeah. psychos yeah <laughs> yeah psychos for psychos yeah yeah it's it's uh, yeah i just don't know what to do with this yeah yeah, I don't know what to do with it. I'm just leaving this alone now. This is this. Can go I, look, no, you decided that we should talk about well. it. I was just like, oh my god, guys, you have to see this crazy thing. Like, it's like showing something gory. You really shouldn't show it, but you feel it's too scary if only you see it. Like, I need someone else to look at and be like, yeah, that is actually terrifying. Yeah. So we're not going to put it in the show notes. You just need to go and find it yourself if you're interested. But it's proper scary. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 worth the shock value. So any any lighter watch news this week, or do we just go on with? No, it gets worse actually. No, okay. It does it. <laughs> <laughs> this this was the start. This was the good news story this week. Ah, <laughs> uh, dearie me. Well, you know, prices continue to level out, and I'll say this: I've been doing a lot of investigation with what's going with retailers and things like that. And one of the things I'm starting to realize more and we'll have to talk about this over a series of shows is what is the future of pricing going to be we know it's not going to be rolex at five times retail forever that's like that's unsustainable but there was a long period of time where most people that bought watches basically never paid retail at all and there was this presumption of discount and i think we all kind of internally knew that it couldn't last forever like it just can't last forever that no one budges until you know a retailer tries to wipe off 25 30 percent off like that just doesn't make any sense prices kept going up because dis discounts kept getting deeper it just got crazier and crazier and crazier and i remember many times thinking to myself is there ever going to be a point in the watch industry where people are just going to be happy paying retail price and nowadays we have 
something about as close to that as I think we'll ever see. And I just wonder, as the world continues to level out, what's it going to be like with watch prices and availability? Because I don't think that what we had tomorrow is what's going to maintain. Retailers got a taste of it, right? They got a taste of having power, and they're not going to let go of it easily. So I'd love to know everyone's thoughts about what that's going to look like over the next couple of years, watch prices and availability, now that retailers and brands, especially the retailers, got a taste of real power. What's going to happen? We had a good reaction last week to Rob being on the show. He brought some some insight from what he sees more on the kind of business side of things. And I do wonder whether in 10 years' time we'll be looking back to the kind of, I don't know, five years, seven years of this period going at that. Yeah, that was the heyday. That was the day when everybody got away with reselling Rolexes at five times the price and shipping stuff out the back door and no discounts. And actually, it will, will be in a completely different zone in five to 10 years' time. If we are on a descent, do you think it ever returns to where it was? Does everybody eventually just get fed up and just owns one watch? I sometimes observe at the moment on the likes of Instagram, and you kind of get a feeling for it if you spend long enough on these platforms, the number of people who seem to be just not endlessly collecting watches, but rather sticking with the one watch they really want and clearing out their collection. I just get the impression there's a lot more people going, why have I accumulated all of this in the last 10 years? Let's get rid of it. Let's just stick with the one or two watches I actually wear. Let's save up and buy the thing I really want. What does that do to the middle market, to the Rolexes, if everyone's now suddenly saving up for APs and Mosers and you know, Constantine Chikins and Chopards and things? Is there a change? Is it driven by the watch geeks? Like, does it actually matter what us as watch geeks do? Does that feed its way through to the rest of the world, who, generally speaking, only do go by one watch? You know, what is actually driving the demand? We kind of live in this little bubble of people who really appreciate timepieces and luxury timepieces at that. But the reality is, most watches that are sold to most people, it's a guy that buy or a girl that buys one watch. And they maybe buy another one when it breaks or another one that's a bit more sporty and rugged or a bit more dressy, depending on the occasion. So they own one, two, maybe three watches and they would never listen to a podcast about watches in a million years. So are we in our own little bubble? Does it? Does anything we do or say actually matter to the market? I realize there's about a million questions in that statement. No, it's a good yeah. question. Yeah, I think uh, I, I've seen the trend that you're describing, uh, Rick, as well, that people just, I see more and more accounts dedicated to just one watch and, oh, okay, this is my grail and I've been aspiring to it. And I also feel like, uh, you know, more of us are maturing into a new phase of, of watch collecting and watch enthusiasm where, you know, I, I don't want to generalize too much, but I think it makes sense for most of us that we get started and we want to try different watches and we buy like five different watches watches if we have two and a half thousand dollars of budget we will buy five watches for five hundred dollars probably or maybe you know like it varies a little bit but thereabouts averages out as opposed to buying one two and a half thousand dollar watch and so people try different flavors and then they figure out what is it that they like and then they start to appreciate the better version or the best version of the type of watch that they figured out that they like or prefer maybe that's what's uh, what's happening that you're describing Ariel. well rick talked about more than one thing there and um I think the one thing that I want to talk about first is this sort of tendency to buy one watch versus multiple watches. I, I hear what you're saying, and I think that there are people who go 
through periods of buying like too much product and they're like, oh my God, I, I went crazy. I guess I'll cut to the traces. I don't think that there's a future where people buy one watch. One of the things which is interesting, especially about the novice collectors, is I remember hearing things people say like, oh, well, I have a very small collection. I just have two or three. Whereas in the people that you're talking about would never be like, I only have one watch. I'd be like, I have my watch. But people today that buy watches choose to do so for fashion purposes. And you don't have people saying, well, you need one pair of shoes. You need one handbag. You need one jacket. I think it's understood that if you wear this thing as an accessory and it makes you feel good, you're going to have multiple of them. So I think it's built in to the idea of purchasing a luxury watch these days very much so more than in the past. That people who like it buy multiple of. Maybe you don't. Maybe you can't afford that. But people that like it it's known that they own a bunch of these so they can have different ones for different occasions. So I think that that's increasingly part of the the watch buying culture. So is there a new group? So is there the watch enthusiast like us and, you know, Hitler, and then the person who just buys one watch, but is there a new group of people, people who would not consider their watch themselves watch enthusiasts, but actually would now be buying more than one watch in the same way as they buy more than one handbag or more than one pair of shoes? Well, what does it matter what they consider themselves? If they buy more than one watch, demographically speaking, they're a multiple consumer of watches, they're a watch enthusiast. But would they consider themselves a watch enthusiast? Because I think there's a difference between someone who buys three or four watches because A, they can afford it and B, Oh, they like the color of that and they appreciate the style of that versus someone who buys a watch because they appreciate the movement or the brand history or they want to show off at Red Bar or they listen to a podcast. Is there a group of people now or have they always existed but just don't get that much attention who buy multiple watches but actually have no interest in the watch? I know that maybe seems a bit odd. Yeah, what they're interested I, I, in is the I, I hear what style you're and the outfit that it goes with. It's easy as someone who's very intellectually into the hobby to look down upon people that just buy it for uh, what we might say is superficial reasons. But the reality is that if their behavior looks the same as that of someone who's much more knowledgeable, from an economic perspective, they're basically the same thing. They look at watches and from time to time they buy a new one. I mean, that's the same exact behavior they buy for reasons that's difficult to measure it's usually to reward themselves so you might approach it from a different area of appreciation but again if you approach it and you're buying overlapping products at similar intervals or just a few over your lifetime it doesn't matter you're still basically the same type of consumer and you are a multiple watch buyer who has general interest in the category even if you're not listening to watch podcasts all the time did wonder as to whether part of the reason for the likes of the moon swatch and even the likes of the icon tide and these kind of things the real i don't know I don't know what the right phrase would be, disposable luxury almost, is the watch enthusiast rather than trying to scratch an itch by buying something really expensive, they have their really expensive watches that they understand, that they collect, but actually, oh, I just want a bit of fun, so I'll buy a G-Shock or I'll buy a Swatch or I'll buy a, a Maurice Lacroix or whatever, something that is kind of under $1,000, under $500, under $100, that just scratches the itch of buying something new, that the hobby has now developed this new category of people who will buy incredibly high-end watches, but will also spend $100 on a G-Shot, and so buy multiples of them. Look, that's a very good point to make. Let's let's be very clear. All these lower-priced items are attempts to sell a luxury product to a mainstream in the hopes 
that'll catch on and be a high volume sale, right? They're not trying to sell a hundred of these. The idea is if you hit on something that has mainstream appeal, you can you can sell thousands, if not tens of thousands. And so these are all very specific, deliberate attempts to A, appeal to a price point, which a mainstream can theoretically afford, and B, to maybe get a sense of relevance to, uh, to, to focus on a story. It might seem hokey and a little bit awkward, but the idea that they're going to choose a recycled ocean plastic is an attempt to somehow you know appeal to the mainstream go after a message they're interested in everybody wants to be swatched and sells a large volume to a mainstream in order to fund the cool interesting stuff but there's very little space in the world for more swatches with that said mainstream consumers are abundantly clear that there's a lot of luxuries out there they cannot afford which are dangled in front of them frustratingly close all the time so the moment you say there's a high-end brand or something that's like a high-end brand that offers something at a price you can afford, people jump on it because we live in a society which dangles luxuries in front of you that you can't have. And the funny thing is that happens no matter how much money you can afford. You can be dirt poor or one of the richest people in the world and you'll still have things dangling in front of you that you can't afford. Interesting conversation. It will certainly not be the last time we speak about it. There are big changes in the market. So do get in touch with the show with any of your thoughts and comments. You can email the show podcasts with an S on the end at a blog to watch.com. First up today, Richard Meal RM UP-01 Ferrari is the new thinnest ever mechanical watch. Okay, so this was an article written by Ripley. He also does our show notes. Uh, so you got him to thank for them. Do you go and comment on the show notes? Yeah, that that article was written actually by by Ripley and myself. Oh, all right. You taking are you t- you taking credit? Are you? <laughs> One of the best comments in the comment section was that's unattractive, impractical, and maddeningly brilliant. That was Michael Kinney. Is that a good summation of this watch? Horrible, horrible, but absolutely brilliant. It's a good summation of everything Richard Mill produces, in a way. <laughs> you know, there's nothing practical in wearing a $300,000 watch other than getting, you know, good service at wherever you go, where, you know, you expect people to recognize your status as a high net worth individual. You know, that is the practical side of things, that it, it communicates wealth extremely well. It has to be said that Richard Mill exceeds at that, you know, and, and probably outperforms any other manufacturer currently. currently so that is... Not something that should be debated, but at the same time, sure, it's probably not that uh, practical to wear a sub two millimeter thick watch around a- anywhere, basically, because it's 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 probably going to break. Let's put it that way. I mean, I have a dog tag I wear, and they're almost identical in size to the, this Richard Mule, and I'm like, wait a minute, that's just it is incredible. I actually, it's okay. Is it hashtag? Is it okay? I actually quite like this. <laughs> I'm not sure I agree that it's horribly unattractive. I'm not a big fan of having logos on anything, especially you know collaboration logos like the Ferrari prancing horse. But actually, I really like this. Ariel, would you wear this watch? I would be very worried about it. In fact, I thought to myself, like, you know how people on Instagram, they make these jokes about things from time to time. I'm wondering why no one has taken an American Express, like, platinum card and just, like, attach a strap to it, put it on their wrist and be like, (laughs) if you just want to say I can spend a little bit of money, (laughs) you know, I I think 
you know, this shape is really an extension of the mechanism. They tried to go really thin. I have a lot of beliefs about this watch, which are somewhat unsubstantiated. Like, I don't actually know what happened at Richard Mille and Ferrari and APRP, but like, what I'm guessing happened was in this order. First, APRP, which is the sort of movement arm of, you know, Audemars Piguet, Renault Papi, that does a lot of these sort of crazy movements for companies like Richard Mille and otherwise. They have this department where they just come up with crazy complications. There's no specific purpose for them. They just make them in the hopes that, hey, there'll be a client someday that, you know, wants something. And I think that they developed it in-house and they went to Richard and be like, hey, you're a good client. We want to give you first refusal on this crazy thing. And Richard's like, yeah, that's cool. I don't really know what to do with it, but uh, let's hold on to it for a while. And then the Ferrari thing comes about and Ferrari's giving him all this gobbledygook about some crazy watch they want. He's like, oh God, that's going to take forever. I have to you know, have a release at this time. <laughs> Ferrari, look, it's not going to be the only watch we do together, but I have this really thin thing and we could just put your logo right here and it'd be great, okay? I think that there's a lot of that that's what happened. They were like, the world's thinnest watch came out. Hey, Ferrari, I know this isn't the ultimate thing we're going to do together, but like, wouldn't you like to be the one that dethroned, you know, another Italian company? You know? <laughs> Some some crazy thing that they said. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, you know, about the thinness because the Bulgari a couple months earlier was like a rounding error thicker, right? 0. Yes. 0.05 millimeters to be exact. I'm starting to have more and more problems with some of Richard Mill pricing. I mean... It's just hard to say it with a straight face. It's just really, really hard. They know it. Everyone knows it. No one's. I don't know that anyone's paying full retail. Maybe they are. Maybe they're so price insensitive, this is fine. And maybe Richard yeah. Mille has a way of justifying it. But it's just so hard to assess that level of value to not a huge amount of metal, right? Like, <laughs> I, I had a friend who used to work at the Richard Mille boutique someplace. And he told me that a certain type of customer is offended if you offered them any sort of discount. And if something is is offered at a discount, they will not take it. So you know they will they will look at it and they will think about it and you know think about the price whether it's worth eight hundred thousand dollars or something like that for you know whatever crazy presumably complication. But you know you you will never see them again if if you if you offer them a discount because they find it insulting. So it's out of the question to to get to ask for an, uh, ask for a discount. They will pay full price, no problem. Do you actually think this watch costs a lot more to me than? their kind of standard, let's say a Rafa Nadal, or do you think they, they really have just priced this in for exactly the kind of clientele that David describes? Maybe the development is, is more expensive, or is rather expensive. I can, I can believe that, you know, but to make or to produce some of those uh, cable suspended crazy, you know, Nadal watches the RM2701, I believe, which is probably my favorite RM of all. It's definitely, you know, way more expensive to produce the income, probably more, for sure. This is a statistic I heard. Somebody who sold Bulgari watches told me that according to Bulgari, the ultra-thin movements of Finissimos and stuff like that, Bulgari has like, I don't know, six or seven record-breaking thin movements. They know a lot about this. And they claim that it takes four times longer to manufacture and assemble them, the ultra-thin ones versus the normal ones. So, okay, let's say it assumes it takes four times longer, maybe five times longer. But we have to ask ourselves, does that mean like tens of thousands of hours or hundreds of thousands of hours or whatever goes into the $1.75 million price point? I mean, if you say that that money goes into the human hours that went into making the watch and assembling it, that needs to be like an insane amount of hours. And it's like, it's not like, APRP is investing in these projects because they take hundreds of thousands of, uh, of hours, they probably 
do some CAD stuff, some modeling, maybe some prototypes to make sure it works. I'm not saying it's not hard, but remember, like, you hire a Roger Smith to spend an entire year making you a watch. Like, that's several hundred thousand, okay? And that's, like, an entire year of, like, one human being. Richard Mill can't afford to spend (laughs) one year and one human being on one watch. The math is more, I think, like what David said. It's part of the presentation. Bless him for it. But rationalists like myself just never going to wrap my mind around it because there's no justification. Yeah, I mean, in the chat on the article, Charlie Sherlock does the sums for us. 150 watches sold at retail was $262.5 million worth. You're not telling me that $200 million of that is straight profit to the bottom line, surely. I, I, I mean, know. you could build a hospital for that amount of money. I mean, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, <laughs> I, I'm enjoying reading some of these uh, <laughs> comments. Swiss underscore cheese says, I think I just spent $300,000 for the Bulgari and invest the remaining $1.4 million in a relentless smear campaign that claims the Richard Mule is actually 1.81 millimeters. <laughs> That's a kind of uh, anarchy we like to encourage. A That's your true Bulgari customer, you know, with the Italian spirit. <laughs> I like that problem solving right there. Oh, yeah. Let's just go after them. They'll be a horse's head it. in your bed. Excellent. Anyway, that's good. You can go and check out the article written by Ripley and David uh, at a blog to watch.com. We have another mystery guest playing Who, What, Why, Where, When. Mystery guest, who are you? Where are you from? Hello, um, I'm Lewis, and I'm from Glasgow. I mean, I know you're from Glasgow. What the people want to know is what company you're from, Lewis. Oh, right. Yeah, <laughs> does, does that not give it away straight away, though? Well, yeah, I suppose it does. They don't need to identify who you are. Like, ah. it, it's not it's not like they submit in, uh, we want to guess that this was Lewis Heath from Anne Ordain. Uh, yeah, well, you give it away. Ah, see, see, I'll give it away, give it away. So how are you, Lewis? I'm very well, thanks. Can't complain. Good, good. And we have a review on the Blog to Watch website this week of one of your watches. Yeah, that was very nice to see. Done by Scott Starr. This is an Anne Ordain Model 1. Now, we normally play Who, What, Why, Where, When, so we'll just stick to it a little bit. Tell us, rather than the why of this watch, tell us the why of the company Anne Ordain. Why on earth did you decide that setting up a watch company was a good idea? It's been forgotten, I think, the answer to that. It was a long time ago. It's very enjoyable doing this kind of work at the moment. Why did we do it? We sort of just went down a rabbit hole with the enameling, I think. We're at the point now where we're doing, obviously, the enameling, but also things like hand-making, and we've got someone designing modules for movements, and what else we've got? We've got a strap maker. So it's, it's a, there's 20, 22 people here in Glasgow just working in one building, making interesting things. So it's, if you like watches, it's a pretty, it's a pretty enjoyable uh, place to be. Cool. So would you say that actually, as you suggest, the enameling was almost first before the watches? It was like, here's this great process. What can we use it for? Oh, no, I mean, it was always planned to go in a watch. It just took a long time to get it to a form where it would go in a watch, if that kind of makes sense. So it was always, the plan was always, well, enamel's a thing that we could use to, you know, traditional enameling is it's, it's fairly conservative and one of the things about enameling that's that's really special is the colors you get out of it. So so yeah. we were kind of thinking, why don't we use some of those colors and bring them into watchmaking and you know kind of take a kind of modern approach to design and uh, and and do something interesting. So that was always the idea. But but when I think it was it was three years of you know of of kind of full time work on the enamelers behalf to before we had a, a watch style that that went in a watch. 
so it did become before the watches but kind of only because it was it was such a sort of laborious thing to get right now we know you're in glasgow so we'll mm -hmm. dispense with the where uh the when so what is actually going on at Anne Ordain just now, the, the watch that was reviewed, the Anne Ordain Model 1, where is that in the current lineup? Well, we've got the, the, the watches which are out are the Model 1s, which it's uh, that one was a teal and it was in the medium size of the 38mm. There's a 35 and a 41 as well. So that, that's been around, um, or it's been sort of developed upon since we launched um, about five years ago. And then we've got a, a Model 2 as well, which is a more kind of outdoorsy, rugged watch. And then we've got a few things coming up this year. Let, let, let me guess, let me guess, let me guess. Model 3. <laughs> no, yes, well, Model 3. It should be the Model 3. But it might You're be doing Apple and skip to like Model 10 or something. I don't know what we're going to call it yet. There's a couple of things. The thing, what, what we tend to do is we, there's lots of experimenting goes on, then you come up with something interesting. So we've got something, or a few things that are interesting, but we haven't quite kind of packaged them up into finished watches yet so the names and all that stuff are still tbc but um but yeah there'll be more coming out in not too distant future hopefully cool so it is busy at the moment you have a full order book i believe so yeah i should i, I noticed on so the people remarking on that obviously it is a long waiting list but we only make about 40 to 50 watches a month so that that's why it's quite lengthy wait but they are they're all kind of handmade so it does it takes a long time and that's and so that's that's why the the wait list a long time it's not that they're just massively popular you know i think, I think it's fair to say they're at least reasonably popular <laughs> yeah moderately popular we're just very slow at making them okay i take them or leave them <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> good stuff good stuff so when can we expect the next thing to come 2022 2023 what we're doing is we, we we're launching a few little projects that we've been working on and it's just it's a nice way of getting out things that we've experimented with so that we don't have to commit to kind of putting them to long production uh, because we've obviously committed to making watches for people for the next couple of years. So mm -hmm. they're almost just just kind of interesting features to, to show show what you can do with, with kind of an Amelin design and that kind of thing. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Lewis. All the best. My pleasure. I believe you're going to be in the States for a bit and then lots of other shows, Watch Pro potentially yep. in London towards the end. I think it's November time. Yeah, so you've got Watch Pro November, uh, wind up in New York in October and Chicago this week. Cool. Well, safe journey. Are you, you're going across yourself? Yeah, we'll be. So, well, safe flight. Well, thanks for having us on. You have just heard from Lewis at Anordain. It was fun to speak to Lewis. He's obviously local to me, just a few miles up the road in Glasgow. Anordain is obviously a company I followed for a very long time. I uh, really enjoyed spending some time with Lewis over the years and getting to know all the team at Anordain. But what I think when I first got to know them, there was maybe four of them. There's now a squad of 22 people working for Anordain. And the Model 1, I think, continues to be their standout. And for a little Scottish company to have achieved uh, what they have achieved in enamel working, so much so 
that uh, there are, shall we say, a number of other brands that it could be said might well be copying the techniques that Anne Ordain have now developed. I think it's just amazing. How much hands-on have you guys ever had with an Anne Ordain? Maybe once or twice saw one. Zero, I'm afraid. Yeah, not 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 a lot. One of the challenges is the last generation of small watch uh, brands, you know, were pretty good about reaching out to media. Now, you know, they don't have any extra time in their hands and they're forced to choose between, you know, traditional media and social media. They can't really do both. So it, it's fine. But I let a lot of these sort of smaller brands, you know, sort of get to a point where I might want to check them out and things like that. So I, I, I miss out certain things when they're fresh. And then some of these brands, the first few years of their lifespan, they have a lot of demand. Part of the discussion I had with Lewis was the kind of problem that they're having just now, which is they've effectively got a two-year waiting list because they can only make 40 of these dials a month, I think it is. So on the one hand, there is no point in them advertising because they can't supply what's already been demanded, but they also don't want to just disappear off the face of the earth. So it's a, a really unusual balance that some of these very popular smaller brands have to strike in terms of keeping a public profile up while not upsetting everyone that does look at the watch and go, oh, I quite fancy one of them, until they realise that you'd have to wait two years longer than you'd yeah. have to wait for a Submariner, probably. It's, it's, it's an interesting niche market that has been created by the likes of Anne Ordain and a number of other companies. So what happens is after that period of decreasing demand, they sort of freak out. So the, the brand is new, they start with no demand. Then through virality and novelty, a good idea can become hyper-popular, and then they're going to be like, oh, wow, we're the best, everyone loves us, we don't have to try very hard. And so they you know, they make those watches, they make those first customers happy, and then when they try to repeat the success again, or maybe the third or fourth time, they start to run into issues because they haven't really done marketing and haven't really gone beyond that first group of people that they reached. Then they sort of get stuck. Or that massive demand can, can derail them and they you know, make people unhappy and they don't deliver and things like that. So there's a lot of hiccups that are expected to happen to even successful brands. And it's sort of a roller coaster they have to ride after a while. But all brands, no matter how successful they get, eventually need to start working with watch media for a variety of purposes. The way Lewis is attempting to resolve this is they're producing a number of kind of one-offs to still attract the media attention and show what they're capable of while still trying to fulfill their order book as such but if you do get the chance to check out Anne Ordain you absolutely should. Photographs can do these watches no justice whatsoever it is a watch you really need to pick up and hold. Go and check out Scott's review of his own Anne Ordain model one on the website it is a very enjoyable read. So I recently reviewed one of the newer IWCs that came out in 2022 this is the Pilot's Watch Chronograph Top Gun Edition Lake Tahoe. I just always found it weird that Pilot's Watch Chronograph is part of the name. It's just one of the most awkward things when you're just doing titles and things like that. Anyhow, so we're just going to call this a Lake Tahoe, and this is a one of a couple of colored ceramic watches that IWC came out with. This is the white ceramic case, and again, Lake Tahoe, you of course immediately think of white. <laughs> no, it's because it, it gets in the winter. But it's a black and white watch, no color, it's 44 millimeters wide. It's, it's on this thick side. It's got one of IWC's in-house movements. It's a little bit different than the 7750, but a very similar layout. I think that the one of the challenges for me is that watches like this are a lot of fun. 
but at a price point of $10,700, it's a decision you have to make very, very carefully. And there's some people who are like, yes, I want to spend $10,000 on that. I can do that. And what I'm noticing a lot is people are buying watches these days that they can maybe trade back in. So they'll buy a watch for $10,000 knowing that in a couple of years they can maybe trade it back in for you know, six or seven or seven or eight thousand dollars, you know, just some amount of money that isn't too much depreciation. Because again, I'm just sort of wondering what what people are because a lot of people buying this watch pretty sure that they might get tired of it. Because like a white watch, it's hard to pull off. Some people love it, wear it forever, but a lot of people that wear it as a novelty and they're like, okay, it's like, you know, it's like the yellow Lamborghini I can only have it for so many years. And so someone else will get it later. I think it's interesting that IWC, recognizing this, has decided to make no more than 1,000 units of this watch per year. So it's not a limited edition. It's a Top Gun edition, which means that it has now a limited production. So they're trying to make it exclusive. They're not just selling it to anyone. So I think that they know it's hot. And I think that anytime that a brand has what they perceive to be a hot product, they want to sort of divvy them out slowly, which is an interesting tactic that I'm I'm also seeing today. As someone that likes something that's a little bit more on the wild side, I find that this is sometimes a bit too conservative. If you like conservative watches, this is perfect. If you like big conservative watches that here happen to be in a kind of interesting color tone, this is great. Like someone that would never buy a white watch might be interested in this because there's a lot of people out there that still feel that a white watch may be too feminine or something like that. I don't think it is. But if you're like someone who like just shudders at the thought of wearing a white watch, this IWC Lake Tahoe might be the the sort of you know cons- manly conservative white watch for you. It's not polished. It's done in sort of this satinized finish. And one of the downsides of the watch that I commented on that was interesting that other people had realized as well is that the finishing of this case, it's kind of like sandpaper and it scuffs things. And people said there's ways of cleaning it and stuff like that, which I believed, but I didn't have you know that much time to figure out how to clean the case. I didn't want to accidentally do something wrong with it. So I didn't want you know to put cleaning solution on it. And IWC is like, oh, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> uh, <laughs> but um, I, I, that is an interesting thing. Now, like a polished white case, that will never happen. Nothing ever scuffs on it. And so you know, as people get more familiar with ceramic as a material, they're recognizing some of the things which are different about it compared to, say, uh, metals. Um, and, I, and I really think that people do need to get to know their materials a lot, which which is uh, just all sort of part of being a well-rounded collector. I like this watch. I think it's fun. If I owned one of these, I would immediately change the strap. For me, the strap was way too long, way too bulky. If you have very large wrists, you probably wouldn't have as much of a problem. But the length of the strap plus the deployant, it was just this big bulky thing on my wrist. So I like the look of the strap. But given the fact that it's sort of so long and kind of bulky on the deployment, I would just put some other cool kind of strap on there. I might have put a black strap. That would look cool as well because it's a black dial. So in terms of if you're someone that likes to swap out with straps, that's that's a cool watch for those, that purpose. So again, very hot watch, not perfect, but a huge amount of personality, going to do well for IWC. It is the Pilot's Watch Chronograph Top Gun Edition Lake Tahoe. Yeah, when we were all at Watches and Wonders, I got the impression, it was my first time there, but I got the impression that everyone was kind of a bit, oh yeah, we've got to go to IWC, but you know, looks a bit dull, we're not hearing lots. But actually, when everybody went onto the stand and saw this, I think to a man, Everybody was like, oh, actually, IWC have produced something that is really feels a bit different, looks pretty funky, wears well. I, I don't know, answer the question no one was asking, maybe. 
But uh, I think everybody that tried this on at the IWC stand was quite smitten by it. I certainly was. So yeah, it's definitely worth a check. I agree with you about the strap. The strap was just a bit, I don't know, it almost felt like an afterthought. Like it hadn't, or maybe it was, as you suggested, it's just that the original wrist models they tried it on were all giants. But the strap did feel a bit strange with this watch. David, you were quite taken by the IWC stand at Watching and Wonders, I recall. That's right, and especially this watch. This is my fav- one of my favorite releases from uh, Watches and Wonders Geneva. I, I think it- it's just a spectacular watch. If I were in the market for a luxury white watch, I would definitely be going for this. I think it's going to be pretty hard to find. I looked for it online, and you know, of course, it's listed for like you know 50% over retail or some ridiculous stuff like that. But it's it's very tempting. I think it's a great looking watch, and I'm I'm yet to figure out what is IWC's obsession with these super long straps. You know, so that you can like wrap them around the tree trunk or something. Uh, I understand that people you know tend to have thick wrists, but sometimes you sometimes when you have like two inches of strap just looking back at you from underneath the watch, it just looks really weird. So yeah, I think you know there's room for improvement there for sure. So go and check out Ariel's article on the IWC and. If you want to comment on that article, you can, but you will also find our show notes on a Friday. Please go and tell us what you think of what we think about the articles that we cover on a blog to watch weekly. Right, David, it's your turn. Take us away with the big release of the week. The Tudor, I don't know. Whatever it's called, right? The Tudor Tudor Ranger. See, the thing is, in Glasgow, if in Glasgow, if Anne Ordain produced a watch called the Tudor Ranger, they'd also need to produce a watch called the Tudor Celtic, and let all the Scottish people and anyone that knows about football recognise that. But you couldn't get away with this as a Scottish company producing a watch called the Tudor Ranger. But Tudor have. Uh, what do we think? I think it's it's an interesting watch in the sense that it replaces the Explorer 139mm that Rolex discontinued quietly uh, about a year ago. So I, I wonder how this goes uh, at these companies anyway. You know, someone goes to work and they're like, look, it's been like half a year now that Rolex has continued the Explorer 1. Should we go and ask if we can make the same watch for Tudor for like, <laughs> you know, a, a half the price or something like that? Because it's a great watch. I mean, three hands, in-house movement, beautifully made, probably beautifully made steel case, steel bracelet for under three grand or $3,050 on the bracelet or something like that. I think that's, that's still a very strong value. And it seems easy, you know, looking at what Tudor is doing that, oh, sure, let's just, you know, look at, through our archives and see what is it that we can do and how we can fill uh, in the little holes in the Rolex lineup. But I, I believe, you know, it, it takes a few actual thought and experience to do this well. And Tudor has been, you know, on the roll for many years now, and this is just another extension. It's a bit boring to my taste. I would worry that if I were to buy this watch a few months into it, I would be like, damn, you know, I should have bought the Pelagos, you know, in, in titanium <laughs> because it offers more. But if you want just a good beater for daily wear, I think it's 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 wonderful for that. Let's, let's cut to the chase. Are Tudor now officially an homage? Rolex brand because the last three watches they've produced so there's this Ranger which as you say is filling in a gap left by Rolex there's Mm. the uh, Black Bay Pro which looks like the Steve McQueen and there was the root beer kind of ranges of Black Bays that were also produced have Tudor as you say are they just looking at where the gaps are now in the Rolex catalogue 
and filling in those gaps. Yeah, probably, but you know, there's nothing wrong with that. That that's what Tudor was actually established to do. You know, mm. it's not something that they picked up on and and they started doing. That's precisely what they have been doing from the get go. They actually, the the watch or you know that this is based on from the 1950s, which was actually called the Tudor Oyster Prince. You know, so it it was already an OP. Today it's an Oyster Perpetual. At the time it was an Oyster Prince, which is funny. But yeah, that's what it's it's always done and keeps on doing. I didn't quite understand understand the story so this is a what that has been brought out in celebration of the 70th anniversary of something that a different Tudor watch was involved in or am I reading this wrong because it struck me that the original version of this watch came out a few years after the Greenland thing that they're celebrating 70 years later this is the wrong <laughs> watch is it not in some way it is but in some way it is not it's true what you're saying in a sense that they started to call it the ranger after that exploration or that or that adventure you know that's what what happened you know so in the same way how the explorer became the explorer after uh, you know mount everest and, and the rolex was worn you know on mount everest so you know sometimes there are these little details but it's true that Tudor actually produced a watch that was part of that exploration back in 1952 or something like that. So it's a tribute to that design, but it's not a tribute to the Ranger name. Ariel, your thoughts on this? You've been awful quiet. Does that reflect your opinions? Kind of. It's another decent-looking conservative watch from Tudor. I think at this point it's silly to say that there's no strategy behind what Rolex and Tudor are doing with one another, that there's very clear that there's price points and sizes they sort of want to have something on every base and that's something which is totally fine in my opinion i think what's important to recognize is is this a watch that you want is it the right value look over the last several years we've had a massive focus on watch style conservatism there's a lot of fantastic watch designs that are conservative but it's gone in such a hyper direction that when someone looks at this these days, yes, it's nice quality. Yes, it looks nice and classic. I think not enough people just actively say, yeah, Tudor, that's nice, but phew, so boring. And, and and Tudor sometimes is like, yes, thank you for saying it. It is boring. Like they want to be, they're not trying to go for exciting. Like even Tudor sits there and be like, why do people want so much excitement from us? Like <laughs> that's not <laughs> what they're supposed to do. They're like, this is hard. This is so hard. Can't we go back to doing what we're good at? So, I mean, we that's what we're seeing right now. I, I don't know why people are so hyper-focused about this. Oh, it comes from Rolex. I mean, there was a time where no one gave a crap about what Tudor was doing at all. Now, all of a sudden, people have to feel like, oh, I need to have an opinion about it because it's a Tudor. So, you think we should just chill out? Tudor produced this. No great shakes. It'll be... It's a mass consumer product. They're a manufacturer. They're just going to sell as many of these as they can. We don't get anything about having brands that are put on a pedestal that everything they come out with deserves conversation. We should be talking about exceptional products no matter where they come from. It's going to be inevitable that every brand releases duds. In fact, some brands are mostly duds. Uh, once in a while, they get something right and that saves them or that lets them live on forever to make other duds. But most watches are duds. I don't mean that in a mean way. I'm simply saying that most watches tend to appeal to a very small number of people because there's just a small market out there, and that's that's okay. But brands will continue to try to make mainstream things that sell, and, and those are the types of things that are, you know, they're they're on the more boring side. So as a collector, just just you know, go after sort of what's interesting. Have a little bit more bravery because you know, some of these brands, like they can't help themselves. They're just they, they they love to do the same thing over and over and over again. 
in the early 2000s for about 10 years. There was a lot of push to get him out of that way. Then because of the popularity of vintage, it just like went straight back into that. And now consumers like us, we're just sitting here looking at it like, okay, another Tudor. Do we have to talk about it? And if nobody wants to talk about it, that's fine. Tudor has enough noteworthy things. I mean, Tudor should be aiming for like one watch a year that people like us care about. I mean, that's really it. So in the last year then, what's the one watch we should care about from Tudor? Or is that just not what they're doing? You know, the one that still it comes up mine is the the black ceramic black bay with the the Metis movement. That's the one that I that I, I still think about. Yeah, I was going to say the black bay pro just uh you know judging from the reactions but what area specified is is much you know a much better fit for us watch nerds with the meta certified movement which is a big big deal you know black ceramic scratch resistant it's just a ton of watch it's not cheap uh not by any standards and certainly not by tudor standard standards because it's like five thousand dollars or so so almost twice as much as the ranger and you don't even get a bracelet but still you know it's, it's just just a lot of watch in, in many ways so i agree with ariel there it's not the Tudor I would buy, but it's it's a great Tudor anyway. So Tudor Ranger, nothing to see here. Yep. <laughs> My only comment would be for a watch that is clearly aimed at real mass market, this should have a date window in it. But then I think all watches. What kind of a Ranger it. are you? I know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I have just, uh, that's it. I have lost. Oh, well, I didn't have any credibility to begin with, but I've lost any that I maybe had managed to generate over the past three or four years. Every ranger out there is like, <laughs> a date. date. I spit on you. What are we, in Go. banking? <laughs> <laughs> the date's not important. We're all busy climbing mountains and doing rangery things. It will be interesting to see the watch. I'm not sure. Sh- uh, I think it... Uh, no, I don't know. I, f- I find it difficult to get enthusiastic about it. I think that's... A good summation of exactly what you've said, Ariel, which is not everything that Tudor or indeed any watch brand produce is actually worthy of conversation. So what I'll actually do is I'll just bleep out the last 10 minutes of conversation and you'll just enjoy this last sentence. So go and read the article about Tudor Ranger on a blog to watch.com. Well, that's kind of it for this week, folks. Although I did want to review the Grubble Forzy. But really all I wanted to say was, can somebody go and look at the Grubble Forzy and the Swatch Fly Magic in the same shot? And, you know, that's all I'm saying. Fantastic looking watch, though. But I'm just saying Swatch Fly Magic. Not the same watch. <laughs> so that's it for the show. What's uh, what's happening this week in your lives, gentlemen? What have you got to look forward to in the world of watches? I'm up here in San Jose doing a video project with Steven Silver and Today was really hard because the number of beautiful watches I had to be around was insanely high, <laughs> and it was just uh, one of the the most amusing watches and, and most expensive ones I played was, was it was about four hundred fifty thousand bucks. It was the MBNF. I don't remember. It was one of the the, the newer ones. It's the HM nine, maybe. Uh, it's a sapphire version. They made five of them, so it's got a purple tint. It's an orological machine. It's fine. It looks like a phallus. It looks like a phallus. Oh. I want to say mm. yes it is the hm9 the hm9 sv and um I, I i giggled like like a like a teenager because the thing looks like a sapphire model of the male phallus and the metal parts look like some type of kinky bondage gear and i just couldn't stop laughing thinking about wearing this and how amusing this was and i just it's so cool insane but hilarious because we're just like five or six guys and we're all thinking the same thing and we're doing like teenagery stuff. 
I, and you'd have to pay four hundred and fifty thousand pounds to appreciate this joke. <laughs> well, the, no, it was it was there was an owner. There was a guy that already bought it. It was just being held for him. And this was just one of like thirty or forty watches. There, there was a bunch of MBNFs. They have Grubel Force. You know, a lot of the newer Bulgaris and, and the Octos and the Finissimos. Um, you know, there, I mean, the, the the store has a lot of other cool things there, but it's just really nice to see all that stuff. It had been a while, and you know, the thing is with MBNF is. They've, they've really changed who they are, and we did a video segment about them. It was really good to see a retrospect. I put on one of the HM5s. He had all three HM5s, the zirconium wow. one, the, the, the black one, and the gold uh-huh. one. And it's interesting, though, because, you know, David and I remember all the times that MBNF would introduce them to us. These things are, like, <laughs> extremely precious now. People are, like, fighting over them. There's like a very robust, you know, certified pre-owned. There's like none that are just sort of floating around there. Like they gobble them up right away. Like you got to be on a list to get an MBNF now. They used to be like, come on, guys. And, and David and I remember that. And now they're like, oh, you want to be in this club? Well, show us what yeah. you're made out of. And like <laughs> that's that's really come up. So I got I got some crazy watches to see. But I also felt I felt very lucky that. I'm in a position right now where I can see and handle a lot of these watches. I'm going to be taking some more pictures of them tomorrow for this, so I'm excited. We'll we'll have a we'll have a shot of that uh, H M nine SV on the website. Don't worry. But it was it was really good to see that stuff. I'm invigorated by it. You know, it's it's it, this day and age with what's going on in the world. Sometimes it's a even more of a nice little insane distraction. And David, I'm just here waiting for the next crazy release. Hopefully at 1.80 millimeters thick, uh, <laughs> or whatever, whatever the next 0.05 millimeter increment is. Uh, you know, hopefully it's coming this week. I mean, surely what happens now is the Richard Mille launch a DLC or a car, you know, some fancy case version of exactly the same watch that's now half a mil or not one. Not even half a mil. What is it? Point zero five of a mil thinner than the You know the what's going to happen? The next one's going to be a Ninja Star. <laughs> and it's just, it's <laughs> literally going to be a dangerous watch. It's like, you know, it, so it, it, it spins on your wrist it, like a little saw blade and then you can take it off yep. and then you can Ninja Star throw it at somebody. Uh, it's going to cut you in the process like multiple times uh, and slice everything up in your bag when you're searching for something. <laughs> <laughs> like a shaving razor for the wrist literally keeps your uh, wrist hair down for uh, for all those uh, wrist shots you can like shave with it i want to tell people stop with the thin watches i'm not saying you can't go thinner i bet you can <laughs> <laughs> just the ultimate just because you can doesn't mean you should and that kind of takes us full circle to the first watch we spoke about at the start of the show just because you can doesn't mean you should so there you go. Thanks for checking out a blog to watch weekly this week. Please do go and leave a review on iTunes or Spotify or whatever uh, platform you listen to us on. Check out the YouTube channel. Check out obviously a blog to watch.com. So goodbye from me and goodbye from both of them. Thanks everyone. We hope you enjoyed this week's blog to watch articles and I look forward to chatting with you next week. Thanks everyone. Goodbye.